We are going to begin to dig into God's Word. Peace be with you. And by the way, uh, my name is Garrison, and I am one of the pastors here at Veritas Dayton. Um, we're so glad that you're here this morning, if this is your first time here. Um, if you would, take a moment, grab a Connect card out at one of these tables out here. I think there are some Connect cards on this black uh, table at the uh, the black um, uh, tablecloth on it, and there's some out on these other tables out in the lobby here. Take a moment, grab one of those, fill it out, let us know how we can be praying for you, how we can get a hold of you, how we can get connected with you in order to get you plugged into what God is doing here in our church family. Uh, we'd love to be able to pray for you and, and maybe buy you a cup of coffee, buy you some lunch, get together sometime, uh, and we, we count it an honor to be able to do that. Um, if you have a Bible... If you want to take your Bible and open to Matthew 5, 21 through 26, Matthew 5, 21 through 26, we are slowly working our way through Jesus's justly famous Sermon on the Mount, his Messianic Manifesto, wherein he shows us what our lives ought to look like as a community as we bear witness uh, to the world um, for the glory of the kingdom of God. Um, and so that's what we're, we're doing here. We're, we're showing uh, what kind of life Jesus is uh, calling us to together. That's what we're looking at in the Sermon on the Mount. So when you get to Matthew 5, 21 to 26, um, let's uh, take a moment and read that. If you want to listen uh, with reverence and joy, because this is the word of our God. This is the inspired word of our God. And so we read these words as if Jesus himself was standing here saying them to us, because these words come to us with the very same authority and power. And so we listen with reverence and joy to the, the words and voice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is what he says to us. You have heard that it was said to those of old... You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would illumine your word to us this morning. We pray that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you, that you would enlighten the eyes of our understanding, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word. And we ask that you would sanctify us, Lord, in your truth. Your word is truth. Lord, so, so give us open ears, open eyes. And open hearts to what you have for us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, last week we started to get into the body of the Sermon on the Mount, and, and we saw the sort of big idea, the thesis statement of the sermon when Jesus said that the righteousness of his disciples and kingdom citizens exceeds and is greater than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And we saw that this, this greater righteousness, this exceeding righteousness, is, is not a, like a different measure of righteousness, but a righteousness of a different kind. In other words, it's not as if the Pharisees had kept 230 of God's commandments while the disciples of Jesus have kept 240 of Jesus' commandments. It's, it's not a difference in measure. It's a difference in, in kind. It's, it's what we might call a deeper righteousness, a righteousness that doesn't just include the outward conformity to God's law while inwardly our hearts are cold, dead, and indifferent. That's the kind of righteousness that Jesus accused the Pharisees of having. But he says that the Christian's righteousness is different. It's not a, a partial, divided, or disordered righteousness, not a disordered, divided, partial goodness like that of the scribes and Pharisees. He's calling us to what we're calling whole person righteousness. Whole person righteousness. It's a righteousness that, that includes in outward obedience in act and in deed, but it's deeper than that. It's also a righteousness, as we see in our text this morning, it's a righteousness of, of speech. The way that Christians speak is different. Even the Christian's speech ought to be seasoned with salt, Paul says in Colossians 4, 6. But it's not just a righteousness of deeds and acts and speech that Jesus is calling us to here. Christian righteousness is a righteousness that goes down deep into the very core of who we are, what Jesus calls our hearts. Hearts in a Jewish worldview are the kind of seat of the entire person. Okay, so, so it's who you are at your core. That's why Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart, for from it flows everything you do. You know, we typically think of the heart as just our emotions, but Jesus is talking about more than just our emotions here. When he talks about our heart, he's talking about our will and our intellect and our affections and our identity, who you are at your core. And the righteousness he calls us to demands nothing, nothing less than all of that. It's a holistic righteousness. The righteousness that he demands is a whole person righteousness, not just a righteousness that settles for outward conformity but ignores the heart. And now Jesus begins to dig into how this changes the way we read and understand and apply the commands of God. So some of you may remember when we went through a sermon series on the Ten Commandments in uh, like three Octobers or two Octobers ago is what it was. Uh, we went through a series on the Ten Commandments and uh, we followed a principle of interpretation for each commandment that we called the inside-outside rule. The inside-outside rule. Uh, and, and the way we followed it is that for every command we would look at, we'd say, okay, so obviously he's calling us to either do or avoid certain actions here, like adultery or stealing or slandering. But it's not 
only calling us to avoid or do certain actions on the outside, but it's also calling us to conform to the will of God internally in our hearts. It's calling us to whole person righteousness. So when we saw the command, you shall not steal, we saw that this command was indeed calling us to avoid the act of stealing externally with our hands, but internally we saw that it was also calling us to lives of contentment. Lives of contentment and attitude and disposition of the heart. And we did that with every single command. Well, where do we get that from? We get that from Jesus right here in the Sermon on the Mount because that's the way he reads the commandments here. And we see him do precisely this with the sixth commandment here in our text this morning. You shall not murder. Jesus shows us that the danger and destructiveness of murder is far wider and far deeper than our actually committing the act with our hands. The danger and destructiveness of murder involves the dispositions and postures of our hearts. He calls us to obey this command, not just externally, but internally as well. And Jonathan Pennington put it this way. He said, to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, disciples must face the issue of the inner person. Not committing the physical act of murder is good and right, of course, but it is not the true litmus test of piety and alignment with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. Examining one's attitudes and speech are just as important as refraining from homicidal violence. You see, Jesus is calling us to apply this commandment not just to our hands, but to our mouths and to our hearts. He's calling us to a deeper righteousness, a whole person righteousness. So that's what we're looking at this morning. We see in this text the idea that as people pursuing whole person righteousness, we seek to rid ourselves of all murderous thoughts, intentions, and speech, and to live peaceably with all. As people pursuing whole person righteousness, we seek to rid ourselves of all murderous thoughts, intentions, and speech, and to live peaceably with all. And we'll unpack that by looking at the command explained, explored, and applied. The command explained, explored, and applied. First, the command explained. Now, here, we're entering into this part of the Sermon on the Mount that people often call the antitheses, the antitheses. And often, they they call them the antitheses because they view each section as Jesus giving an antithesis to a particular command given in the Old Testament. So here he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And then he offers, supposedly, the antithesis. But I say to you that, and he does it with other ones, he says, Uh, with uh, the next one. He says, you you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you. And the next one, he says, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce, but I say to you. And on it goes. And so that's why you'll often see them called the antitheses. However, I don't think that's actually honoring the intent of Jesus and of Matthew here. Jesus isn't offering an antithesis to the Old Testament commands. Remember, that doesn't exactly square with what we saw last week when Jesus said that in the previous paragraph that he wasn't coming to abolish or set aside or relax these commands. He came to fulfill them. He came to truthfully and accurately teach them and apply them. He came to fulfill their ultimate purpose and the arrival and inauguration of the kingdom of God. So in light of that, 
I think it would be better for us not to call them the antitheses, but the explanations. He's not contradicting the commands of God. And, 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 and he's rather, he's interpreting and explaining and, and, and applying the commands of God and doing so in the way that they were meant to be interpreted and explained and applied. And he does this in a way that just cuts to the quick of our souls. You know, Jesus, again, he's, he's not content with merely addressing our external conformity to the commands of God. You know, he wants all of you. He wants your whole being to live in accordance with the good and gracious will of God. He wants nothing less than wholehearted obedience and whole person righteousness from you. He doesn't want our souls to be divided and our affections to be disordered. He wants you to be whole. And so he says... You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So he starts this section with the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Now, the fact that to not murder is a command probably doesn't come as a surprise to anyone in the room. Most are probably familiar with this command, and even if you're not, because we're all divine image bearers endowed with a conscience, we know something of God's will and law concerning the taking of human life, even if that knowledge is suppressed and numbed. God values human life. He created it. He wants to protect it. He tells Noah this in, in the new humanity in Genesis 9-6. He says that, that it's because he created humanity in his image that murder is forbidden, and he says it in no unclear and uncertain terms. It also, then, shouldn't come as a surprise to us that the people of God in the Old Covenant, since they were a geopolitical nation with civil laws and processes, also had laws concerning judges and courts and civil, civil pen, penalties for breaking the commands of God. And we find these instructions in Deuteronomy 16 and 19 and Exodus 21. And this is what Jesus is talking about when he says, liable to judgment. If someone murdered their neighbor, they were liable to judgment in this geopolitical community, as Jesus says here. And now, Jesus takes us deeper into this command, though. Or maybe it would be more appropriate to say he takes it deeper into us. And he does this by addressing not just the act of murder itself, but the desires and dispositions of the human heart that cause such acts in the first place. And he shows that, that the root of murder is present in someone's heart long before the fruit of murder is wrought in someone's life. We can have murderous hearts long before we have murderous hands. And we can carry our murderous hearts around with us without even ever physically acting on these desires and dispositions. But Jesus says here that, that those with murderous hearts and mouths are just as liable to judgment. You know, the vast majority of us can say that we've never murdered anyone. But as Jesus says here, you know, have we been angry with our brothers? 
And the word for anger here is the word that doesn't just mean having like a surge of angry emotions. He's talking about like an enduring, abiding anger. An anger that we might describe as, as contempt or bitterness in our hearts toward others. And not only that, but he goes on to, to speak about how this anger may have likely manifested itself in someone's life. Maybe it's not manifested in the act of murder in your life, but have you, he says here, have you insulted your brother? Literally, he says, whoever calls his brother Raka will be liable to the council. He mentions not just a general insult, as the ESV translates it, but but a, a specific insult, and it's an insult that particularly attacks someone's intelligence. It literally means empty, kind of like calling someone empty-headed, or calling them a stupid idiot, or calling them a moron. And then it escalates even further. Jesus says, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And now if the previous insult was insulting someone's intelligence, This one goes even further. It's different. You know, in in, in our context, when we call someone a fool, we're likely insulting someone's intelligence. But in Jesus' context, calling someone a fool was basically consigning them to hell. It was speaking a word of damnation over them. It's a sign of writing someone off, saying, in essence, you could burn in hell for all I care. Have we spoken harshly toward and insulted others? And as Jesus mentions specifically here, he's not just talking about others in general. He's talking about brothers and sisters, fellow children of our Father in heaven. Well, in God's eyes, that is tantamount to murder. And therefore, Jesus says here, this kind of disposition and attitude in speech makes someone liable to church discipline. And not only that, but if it's enduring, if it's not repented of, if a person does not turn away from this kind of anger and contempt and hatred and bitterness, if it consumes them and becomes habitual, then they are subject to the court that not only judges with temporal judgments, but with eternal judgment. That's what Jesus is speaking about here when he says that they're liable to the hell of fire. He's talking eternal judgment in the lake of fire. You don't commit murder, that's good, Jesus says. But is your heart murderous? Do you carry an abiding anger? Do you carry contempt and hatred and bitterness toward a brother or sister? And not only that, but do you you commit character assassination with your speech? Do you insult and gossip and malign others with your tongue? Well, that is tantamount to murder. And you're just as liable to temporal and eternal judgment. That's the command explained. Now, let's explore it. And what I mean by that is is let's ask some questions about it. I imagine some questions might be forming in your mind right now. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're a little skeptical about this teaching from Jesus here. Perhaps you are a believer and you have some questions. You're afraid to voice them. might be labeled a heretic. It's okay. You can ask these questions. So let's ask some questions. A question that might come to mind for some of you might be, is this even good? Like, is this even, is this a good thing for us to abide by, to live by? Like, is is what Jesus teaching here 
a good thing for us to obey and abide by and follow with our lives. Isn't it it okay to be angry sometimes? Isn't it even good to be angry sometimes? And of course, the answer to that question is yes. Jesus is not giving a blanket ban on anger any more than he's giving a blanket ban on calling someone a fool, something he calls the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 17. And as anyone with an ounce of familiarity with the Bible would know, the scriptures speak about God's anger. And of course, his, his anger is not like ours because God does not have passions. He is, as the theologians say, he is impassable. And I have questions about that. We can talk about that sometime. We don't have time now. But our capacity for, for anger is a means by which we image our creator. And Jesus, as perfect man, the perfect image of God, got angry. He got angry at the Pharisees. He got angry when he stood outside the grave of his friend Lazarus and saw the the havoc that death was wreaking on his creation. He got angry. And the Apostle Paul even tells the Ephesian church in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. So evidently, It is absolutely possible to be angry without sinning. It is absolutely possible to be angry in a just and righteous way. So maybe we just want to put it like this. There's a difference between anger as righteous indignation and anger as wrath or malice. What's the difference? Well, anger as righteous indignation is the kind of maybe emotional surge of anger that comes when someone witnesses or experiences injustice or wrongdoing. And of course, that is perfectly understandable and even good. But the kind of anger Jesus is talking about here is not a healthy response of anger in the face of wrongdoing and injustice. The kind of anger he's talking about here is an enduring, consuming, and habitual kind of anger. And be careful here, you know, because I think these categories are, are, are clean and neat as we kind of divide them according to the word of God, but they're not clean and neat in our hearts. It gets really messy in there. You know, so, so because even if you can categorize your anger as righteous indignation, you must, must, must be so very careful because anger is an intoxicating and sneaky thing. You know, when angry, we can so easily dupe ourselves into thinking that our anger is righteous and just and have it quickly turn into a destructive thing. And even when our anger is good and just, it can quickly and unknowingly turn into an anger that is enduring and consuming and habitual. We must be so very careful with anger. It's like playing with fire. And that's the kind of anger Jesus is rebuking here, an anger that is enduring, consuming, and habitual. It's, it's enduring. Now, it's not just something that comes up when you're wronged or when you witness someone else being wronged, but you, you start to carry this anger with you as time goes on. You find out, maybe, for example, someone gossips about you, you become angry. It's understandable. But then you don't let it go. You fume about it. You nurse bitterness in your heart. You pile up accusations toward them in your heart. You imagine, everyone has done this, you imagine yourself having conversations with this person where you best them and put them in their place. It's an enduring anger. 
Not only that, but it's a, it's a consuming anger. It starts to consume your thoughts and feelings. It affects your moods, even when you're doing like pleasant things with your friends or family. It's like the mind flayer in Stranger Things. You know, it just spreads its tentacles all throughout your body. It's like cancer. It just spreads and spreads throughout your bodies. It spreads into your days and your nights and your hours and your work life and your family life and your church life. You think about it at random times and it makes your blood boil and your face flush and your stomach churn. It's consuming you. It's consuming And it's habitual anger. When anger endures and consumes your life, it starts to just become a natural response for you. Even even amongst those who are most for you and love you in your life, you find yourself flying off the handle toward people. Finding that you have less and less control over when you respond in such a way. Calling people idiots and fools becomes a regular practice. You find yourself more in more and more arguments. You find yourself in more and more disagreements and more and more heated exchanges. You're collecting more and more enemies. It's habitual. This is the kind of anger that Jesus is talking about here. So is his command and instruction, good. Absolutely. Because he loves us. He's calling us away from lives of the self-destructiveness of anger. He's calling us out of lives of bitterness and misery because that is destructive. It's destructive to those around us and it's destructive to our own souls. He's helping us identify destructive attitudes and patterns and habits in our lives so that we might particularly repent of them and give ourselves to Christ and the new life he has for us. Yes, it's good. It's absolutely good. Another question that might come up is, is this even realistic? I mean, isn't this expecting too much? Can one really be expected to exercise self-control over their emotional state? Can one really be expected to repent not just of wicked actions, but wicked attitudes and dispositions in one's heart? I mean, if we were to take a survey of hands here from everyone in the room who's ever struggled with this kind of anger, every single honest person would raise their hands. There's a great book by David Pallison called Good and Angry. It's about anger. I'd highly suggest reading it. It's very thoughtful and penetrating and piercing. One of the best chapters in the entire book is called Do You Have a Problem with Anger? You know, so you're like getting ready to dig into this chapter and you're going, all right, I'm going to do the hard work of, of figuring out if I have a problem with anger. I'm going to read the diagnostic questions and journal and pray and ask these questions, give myself to the sober self-examination, and you turn the page, and there's a single word that just says, yes. Yes, you have a problem with anger. Because it's such an intoxicating and sneaky thing. I'm confident you have a problem with anger. I have a problem with anger. So again, is this even realistic? I would say three things. First, remember that the Sermon on the Mount is not a list of prerequisites that people have to meet before they get into Jesus' kingdom. It's not as if you have had to have lived the kind of life 
described in the Sermon on the Mount, consistently for your whole life, and then and only then can you enter into the kingdom of heaven. If that were the case, then absolutely no one would be a kingdom citizen. Yes and amen. No, it is instruction for those who are already Jesus' disciples and kingdom citizens. Sermon on the Mount is instruction for how to live for those who are already possessing salvation and eternal life within, or else they would have no chance of applying its instructions to their life. So we seek to live Jesus' words here from a place of already being accepted, already belonging to Jesus in his kingdom. Second, remember that this teaching is absolutely unrealistic unless one is indwelled and transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, St. Augustine, an African bishop, he once captured this idea best in a prayer. He said, Lord, command what you will, but grant what you command. And the idea being that, that, that God's command, God commands his people what he will, and his commands are righteous and good and true, but in and of ourselves we have no power or ability to obey his commands. But he not only gives us the commands, he gives us grace. He gives us the Spirit's presence and power within to give us the desire to obey this command. He gives us the Spirit's presence and power within to fight to obey this command. He gives us the Spirit's presence and power within in order to be convicted when we don't obey this command so that we can confess when we don't obey this command and to change and direct us so that we grow in obeying this command. As one pastor theologian wrote, he said, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. Understand, this is unrealistic if we're left to ourselves. But God gives us grace. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us a divine and supernatural work within to equip us and enable us and empower us to be careful to obey his commands. Third, remember that sanctification is a process, not an event. This is something we like to say a lot at the Green Household. Sanctification is a process, not an event. If you're not familiar with that word, sanctification, it means like a progressive growth in righteousness. And it's, it's a gift from God to the Christian in Christ. And it's something all genuine believers experience. And here's the thing, it's not an event. It's not an event. It doesn't happen in a moment. It's not as if you trust Christ and then boom, You're living just like Christ. There is a moment, an event of transformation called the new birth in which someone is changed in a moment from being dead to sin to alive in Christ and that is the start of the sanctification process. But then sanctification is a lifelong journey and battle to grow in Christ-likeness and it's a process, not an event. And what's more is the process of sanctification is progressive. It's not linear. So it's progressive, not linear. We often like to think of sanctification as like there's just a straight line from A to B. The beginning of your Christian life, it starts, and then it's a straight line to either you die or Christ returns. That's not it. It's not linear. It's got, the line has loops and zigzags and turns, and the the, the story of our sanctification is one with plot turns and regresses, but still 
It's trending toward and bent toward and progressively making its way toward Christ-likeness. So is this realistic? It depends on what you mean. If you mean, has anyone ever lived this flawlessly and absolutely outside of Christ? I would say no, if that's what you mean. But if you mean, can and will Jesus' teaching here be more and more reflected in my life and character as a follower of Jesus? You betcha. Absolutely. You are indwelled by the power of the Holy Spirit, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. So let's not dismiss Jesus' teaching by calling it unrealistic. Let's give ourselves over to living lives of wholehearted repentance and whole person righteousness. Let's lay our hearts before him, considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. And Jesus goes on to help us learn how to do that. He goes on to apply this command with two specific examples to help us do just that. So let's look at the command applied. By the way, this is basically Jesus' method for going through each of these commandments here in the rest of chapter 5. In the rest of chapter 5. He will look at a command and he'll explain its true meaning and then he'll apply it. That's kind of how he does it each time. And he does that here with two specific examples. He shows, he gives a practical application for how to obey it. And the first is an exhortation to be reconciled to someone who has something against you. He says in verse 23, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So the example is one in which you're in the middle of worship. And remember there that there's been a rift in fellowship, rift in relationship between you or a brother and a brother or sister. And and instead of responding with anger, instead of responding with insults and calling them a fool and writing them off, you go to them in order to be reconciled. Perhaps it would be a little more contemporary for us to imagine ourselves in the church service on a Sunday morning. Like, you're here right now. We're here, we're singing, we're praying, we're hearing God's word read and preached. We're getting ready to come to the Lord's Supper. But there, as we're about to approach the Lord's Supper, remember that there's a brother or sister in the room that we got into an argument with in this past week, and we haven't resolved things. I haven't asked for forgiveness for the unkind words spoken it would be better for you to stand up right in the middle of service, even if it's disruptive, and go over to ask that person to go out into the hall with you to ask their forgiveness and to be reconciled to them than it would for you to continue on throughout the service as if everything was okay. And of course, you know, such an idea would have been a lot more radical in Jesus' day than in our day because they took worship a lot more seriously than we typically do. Jesus' original audience would have seen the duties of worship as being primary in a person's life. But Jesus is saying here, if you, you're actually not worshiping properly if you're in an unreconciled state with a brother or sister. And Jesus takes it so seriously, actually, that, that he's treating it as a kind of emergency. 
You know, like there's not much that, that would have interrupted someone in the middle of worship in the temple, like medical emergencies maybe, natural disasters perhaps, but there's not much. Well, this is one such occasion. It is urgent for you to make things right with your brothers and sisters in Christ as quickly as possible. Maybe there's something coming to mind for you right now. Maybe there's a phone call that you need to make. Maybe there's a person in this room that you need to speak with. It's urgent that you do. Be reconciled to them, Jesus says. The next example Jesus gives is also quite extreme. It's when you're on your way to court with someone who's accusing you of wrongdoing or someone to whom you are in debt, and and he says, come quickly, or come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. And truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. In other words, now Jesus is using another example, the example of settling out of court as a means of saying that you need to make things right as quickly as possible. If someone has something against you, don't let things linger. Don't be nonchalant about it. Don't write them off. Don't respond with anger. Don't insult them. Don't consign them to damnation. Make things right as soon as possible. And these two examples are are extreme, I grant you, but they also give us something to strive for in just ordinary, everyday life. And that is this. I think it's probably best summed up by the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, 18. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. As the author of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace, strive for peace with everyone. Don't let anger endure and consume. Don't let it become habitual in your life. Don't insult others and consign them to hell out of anger and malice and bitterness. Rather, strive to be at peace with everyone. Strive to live in a state of reconciliation with everyone. When there's strife, when that does happen, because it inevitably will happen in a fallen world, when there are rifts, be quick and urgent to make things right. That's how this one, that's how, that's how one properly and truly and wholeheartedly adheres to God's command not to murder. And of course, where can we see, where better can we see such a life, such a whole person righteousness than in the one who gives us this instruction? He's the one who fulfilled the whole law by by living a life of whole person righteousness and wholehearted obedience before the Father for our sakes. When we made ourselves his enemies, he came to make us his friends. When we rebelled against God and cursed God, God, Christ came to reconcile us through the cross and through the sacrifice of his body. When we crucified him and nailed him to a tree, there was no malice or bitterness in his heart. He didn't curse us with his dying breath, but he prayed for our forgiveness, saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. 
And when he died, he did so to pay for our anger, our malice, our wrath, our bitterness, our insult, every harsh word, every murderous thought, desire, word, and action of ours was laid on him and he took it to the grave so that we would die to sin so that we would die to such anger and bitterness and impure speech and murder. And then he rose on the third day so that the power of his new creation would break into this present evil age and would break into our lives so that we would become a people empowered and equipped with the presence of God within to progressively assuredly and progressively become more and more and more like him, to image him on the earth. And so that's why we seek first the kingdom of God and righteousness. We give ourselves wholeheartedly to whole person righteousness that we might be faithful reflectors and representatives of him who has rescued and redeemed us. Not to earn or deserve anything from him, but because it's in obeying and following him that true wholeness and human flourishing is found. The anger we're commanded against here is destructive. It diminishes us as human beings made in God's image, but the righteousness and peace in which he calls us is simply a call into who and what he made us to be. Truly alive, truly happy, truly free, truly and wholly righteous, just like him. As people pursuing whole person righteousness, we seek to rid ourselves of all murderous thoughts, intentions, and speech, and to live peaceably with all. Let's pray. Father, seal this word upon our hearts. And pray that as we approach the table now, that you would comfort us, that you would commune with us, and that you would form us and nourish our souls, strengthen our souls to live wholeheartedly before you, to live lives of whole person righteousness. And pray for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.